When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Blackberry episode of Slate Money Goes to the Movies. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of Slate and New York Times and such places. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hi, Felix. We are going to talk about Blackberry, the movie about the company, which actually wasn't called Blackberry. It was called Research in Motion. And since none of us are Canadian, we have decided to bring in the greatest possible expert to explain all things Canadian, all things Canadian to us, Amanda Lang. Welcome. Thank you, Amanda. Um, introduce yourself. Who are you, and how long have you been a Canadian? <laughs> I've been a Canadian my whole life, uh, the duration of which I will not mention, uh, but a while. Uh, I'm a business journalist and um, I'm currently uh, BNN Bloomberg, but um, over time uh, in this country was back in the 90s, the tech reporter for the then Financial Post, now National Post, one of the big papers. So covered research in motion from pre-IPO days. So it was with great interest that I saw uh, them turning this fine Canadian book worth a read into a movie. So, okay, so this is the first thing we need to know. This is an adaptation of a book. What's the book? So the book is um, called Losing the Signal um, by Jackie McNish and Sean Silkoff, two great Canadian journalists. Obviously, neither were available for this podcast. That's all right. Uh, we tr- we a, try a, not to get principles on this. On okay. This show. Oh, there you go. Even better. Um, it, and it's a it's a great read. Um, and actually, I don't want to preempt you on this, but if there's, you know, many people who love a book will hate the movie adaptation uh, because there's just a kind of a necessary process you go through in adapting for a film that, um, you know, can hurt a book. But in this case, there's, I got lots to complain about. The book is called Losing the Signal by Jackie McNish and Sean Silkoff. um, And it's a wonderful telling of what is a great Canadian business story, a dramatic Canadian business story with a Shakespearean arc to it. Uh, So maybe it was inevitable that turning it into a movie, you would lose some of the drama there. But um, I will say that I think that happened. Would you say that the movie that the movie is less dramatic than the book or even less, less dramatic than the reality as you experienced it? That is my chief complaint, um, which is, you know, if you were going to make a movie out of my life, you might need to embellish to make it interesting for moviegoers. In this case, where they departed from fact, it got less interesting. The facts of this story are compelling. This, the arc of this story is uh, is the, the real tale of human nature and the story of business that we see over and over and over and innovation and the cycle of innovation. Uh, it's a great story in what happened to it. Unfortunately, even its tragic ending. Um, and yeah, I think the movie oversimplified to the point of losing some of the real drama here. Should we just briefly recap what the, the story behind the movie? This- 
So, yeah, because this is also one one of my favorite things about Canadian markets is that there always seems to be one company that is worth like more than the rest of the Canadian market combined. And, you know, sometimes it's a potash company, sometimes it's a cell phone company. Um, and this is the story of the rise and fall of, I, I guess, that brief period when everyone thought that Waterloo, Ontario was going to be the, the next Silicon Valley. To be fair, uh, we there there were a number of Canadian tech leaders at the time of Research in Motion. You will remember the name Nortel, um, yeah. and it was part of a tech ecosystem that was ahead of the curve on a lot of things in the wireless space and in patents. Um, and so the the intellectual value was here, and Waterloo was, did become a hotbed because there was such great talent. And actually. I'll digress a little bit. If there's a line from the movie that made me want to get up and walk out, it was, <laughs> I didn't say they were the best engineers. I said they were the best Canadian engineers. Never got said, would never have been said. And P.S., the great technical breakthroughs came from Canadian engineers. So that was a bit of a, that, that was a bit of a big kind of F you to the whole country for no reason at all that I couldn't understand. Okay, uh, Blackberry, so let's, let's fact check that bit very quickly. In the movie, um, BlackBerry kind of stalls out, technically speaking, because they have very good engineers by Canadian standards, but not. But then they kind of reach a point where they can't get any better. So at that point, Jim Balsley flies off to recruit the greatest people, the greatest engineers and, and staffers from Google and elsewhere, promising them gazillions of dollars in stock options. And then they come in and then they manage to get the breakthrough that was needed. Is that in the book and is that remotely true? Not in the book. Um, not untrue in the sense that what happened to BlackBerry was it was hoist on its own success. Um, it had solved a problem in a very elegant way that nobody else had achieved, which was Lazaridis is one of the co-founders of BlackBerry. Great breakthrough was we're going to simplify and just do the one thing really well. We're going to put email on a wireless device and we're going to do that well. And in doing that, he solved the bandwidth problem, which had been the big technical issue. So they were the first to do that. Then, of course, they sold many, many millions of these devices. People became addicted, including me living in New York in the late 90s. Bell South sent me one and I refused to send it back. They were sending me beseeching letters. Ms. Lang, <laughs> that was just a demo. Please send it back. I couldn't part with it. Uh, they became so successful that they, they actually needed to grow their business now in a new way. And then, yeah, they had to leapfrog the technology to figure out how to do more but they were still leading on the technology and that was all still internal. And a lot of it was driven from the core team that was there at the beginning. This, the people they brought in, and they did, they brought a lot of people in, came in to do other things, including helping them streamline their manufacturing, figuring out process, just grow the business. So to recap, the movie's premise basically is um, that there's this guy, Mike Lazaridis. He is kind of your typical, if you've seen any movie about the tech, world or if you've seen Silicon Valley he is the the geeky one the one that can't speak for himself he doesn't understand business he doesn't like business but he's brilliant and we know he's brilliant because he can fix an intercom with the paperclip or something he runs into Jim Balsillie which if you've also seen literally any other movie about a tech company or watched <laughs> a TV show about a tech company he's the business guy he knows business oh and he also curses a lot and yells at people and that's how you know he's like a really important special businessman who's really good cuz he yells a lot and bangs things all the time so he convinces Mike Lazaridis 
and his friend, who's also very um, honest and earnest and soulful. We know this because he wears a bandana throughout the movie. Through the 12-year period, he always wears the same bandana. He never gets a new outfit. And that's how you recognize him in the sea of pasty white guys who are in this company. No one else is in the company besides pasty white guys and Jim Balsillie, who is not as pasty but has a bald head. So thanks to Jim Balsillie or Balsillie, that's a running joke in the movie, which is kind of funny, I think. Um, he gets, he makes the Blackberry a success and it's amazing and woo. And then things proceed apace. Okay. Now that we've recapped, I feel we can go on. Okay. So, <laughs> I, I, and I, I'm going to just be, I'm going to sound cranky. So I apologize. Good. We in like cranky on the I show. So, I'm that's, so sorry. That's good. But I don't understand why they had to turn these two lead characters who are both compelling guys in their own way, still are, into caricatures. Uh, Mike Lazaridis is, by any measure, from an early age, a tech savant. He could take things apart and put them together. He showed his science teacher in grade 10 how to do things. He was also always understood to be um, a personable human. He wasn't bullied because people liked him. He could mm -hmm. get along in the world. He was not, uh, you know, a stare-at-your-shoes engineer. Uh, and, and similarly, Jim Balsillie... Yeah, he was hard driving. He'd be the first to tell you that. And you see that in the references to uh, his ambition early to, to grow his uh, his world beyond the one he grew up in. But you also, in the book at least, and from the many times I've interviewed him, people who worked for him would quote unquote follow him through fire. They loved him. He was one of those leaders who was bombastic and big and energizing and yeah, could yell when the, he felt the occasion called for it. We've all had bosses like that, less so these days. Um, and But great loyalty is what he commanded. And P.S., they had a wonderful partnership. So the, again, the complexity, maybe it's too hard to put into a script and it's too hard to put under the screen. But to me, that's actually a cool story that you could have told. These unlikely, this unlikely combination, but that was so good. The, the, the message of the movie is, seems to be that neither of them particularly liked each other very much. Which is untrue. At, like patently untrue. They were uh, they were never sympathetic in the sense that when they went back to their corners at night, they wanted to do very different things. Um, you know, Jim wanted to go coach his kids' basketball team. Mike wanted to be either either with his family or reading about quantum physics. Uh, they were very different kind of guys. But as a partnership, it only really started to fray very late in the game. The uh, there was a whole controversy the movie does cover around backdating of stock options that did cause a rift between them, that bo both will say that, that that was a, a problematic period for them because they both thought the other handled it poorly. But that was after they'd already made their big colossal mistake. I mean, that was after they'd sort of missed the Apple moment. And that's the, so the arc of this story is they, they invented a category, they created the technology, they showed the world what was possible. And then, as we've seen with incumbent after incumbent in history, it's the innovator's dilemma, they let it go. And somebody else came along, in this case it was Apple, with a better device in their category, and they never, they never got it back. But there were also good reasons why they did it that are glossed over. Is there a world, Amanda, where Black reinvents the iPhone? Or did you need to be Steve Jobs to do that? Well, this is the history of the disruptive innovator, right? It generally can't be the first mover. It can't be uh, the incumbent. We, now, which has been because I watched, I was, I was a reporter through this whole period and watched the BlackBerry story so perfectly illustrate that that's true. I keep waiting for Apple to be unable to disrupt itself. And so far, it's actually been 
you know, what it's a it, stay tuned, but it's been the one that's been able to do it um, over and over. Now, will it be able to do it in this next iteration of whatever our AI quantum driven technology is? I don't know. But so far, Apple is, has been the exception to that rule. You know, it's funny. I thought the theme of the movie was more about um, taking shortcuts and, you know, it works until it doesn't. Um, so you have this sequence of events where Balsili in particular sort of bullies people into taking shortcuts so that they can meet deadlines and they can pitch things and so on. And, you know, backdating the stock options was a shortcut. How much of that conforms to what really happened in your opinion? Because I, I felt like part of the reason why they caricatured Balsili so much is that they wanted to illustrate um, some of the consequences of the because I said so school of management, which is, you know, you have a yeah. charismatic but bossy CEO who comes in and says, just do it and get it done. There's a there's a grain of truth in it in the sense that when they hit that period where they really needed to rapidly A, keep up with demand and B, keep up with the new innovations. So when they did have to have an answer to the iPhone, they did internally, and this is well documented, put pressure on their staff to come up with a solution to the, you know, the full, the full touchscreen phone fast. What's untrue, and actually, it, again, it was the other thing that made me bonkers. I don't, if, for those who have seen the movies, there's a scene where they, they fake a prototype uh, you know, they run to the store and they buy children's toys and calculators and they fake a prototype. That is so not in the DNA of this company. It's not, I, I don't know what Lazarus makes of that. Balsley has been very gracious about this film, but things like that, if you were an engineer, if you were a day 10 employee at this company, you'd be pretty, I think, infuriated by that. They would not have done that. They did good technology that worked. But how did they not see, did they really not know the iPhone was coming? I mean, Apple was working on it for a very long time. They had the iPod, like people were talking about the possibility. How are they so blindsided? Like you'd think a sophisticated public multi, multi-billion dollar company would yeah. know that this was coming. And I, was just- I remember that Steve Jobs keynote though, when he announced the iPhone and I was, I for one was blindsided as someone who maybe wasn't paying as much attention as Jim Bolsley should have been paying. Um, when when Jobs is like, look at this thing, it does this, it does this, it does this. My jaw is on the floor. I'm like, holy crap! I had no idea this was coming. Yeah, I mean, whether they knew Apple was coming out, remember that was a consumer product, and mm-hmm. you may recall that. And I can remember as a business journalist completely buying the research in motion argument, which was they had the security piece of this locked up. Our, our messages did not run over these crazy open networks on AT&T and Bell, you know, we would never trust that security. Remember Barack Obama wouldn't let them pry his his Blackberry out of his hand. And the reason for that was the security. And that was, they were so sure they'd keep the corporate and government markets and that this consumer play would be irrelevant. And then the tipping point was, and again, this is the great irony that didn't get told, but is told in the book. Their own strategy had been to kind of end run corporate IT departments and just make sure uh, highly placed employees got their hands on a BlackBerry and then they would insist on using it. And that's exactly how iPhone won. CEOs had an iPhone and then, and then even more an iPad. And they went to their IT departments and said, I don't want to have a home life and a business life, make this all work together. Mm-hmm. And it was the BlackBerry strategy, but it was Apple that won that, won that that's, game. That's so interesting about strategy because that of course was the way that Zoom and Slack both mm-hmm. grew was by giving the product away for free to people within organizations and then eventually the organization becomes addicted to it and then it's 
the easiest sell in the world because it's it's you know your own employees who are begging the CTO to buy this thing rather than some like fast talking exactly. salesperson. I didn't realize that, that that, but it makes sense that that was the um, that that was the BlackBerry strategy as well. But, and it's also ironic that Zoom and Slack both wound up getting disrupted in their own way. Well, by, like, it's it's Microsoft also funny. Teams. You know, it's funny because BlackBerry is still technically around. It's still trading and it, it refers to itself <laughs> as a cybersecurity company. Uh, and it's launching an Internet of Things unit soon. So it's still kind yes. of relying on its, you know, encryption patents and things like that. It's always the patents which keep the value. Amanda, did you follow the big patent case um, with BlackBerry? All I can yes, remember yes. in my head was that it was a half a billion dollar case. And what really resonated with me was it yeah. was at the rocket docket, which was a, yes. a phrase I remember from reporting on it back in the day, which, uh, which is, of course, a very fast paced particular court um, with various cerebral justices or judges. And um, what's really well portrayed in the book, actually, is how devastating this was to, uh, to, to Jim Balsillie, uh, that they didn't have the patents locked up and that they lost that fight. And you can debate whether this was a troll um, that never should have taken this time and money uh, you know, from this, this company or whether BlackBerry was sloppy in how it managed this patent process. But either way, it's, it's a side note in, you know, in the overall story, but it was an important part of their history for sure sort of maybe goes to the unsophisticated roots of the company that they didn't lock up the patents right away. I think so. And the speed at which they were moving, right, which is very typical of, uh, of a tech startup. They moved so fast and then they were suddenly this billion dollar plus player uh, and they still acted like they were a 10 man operation over a bagel shop. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery which is a podcast company and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Let me ask you about the, the movie, like Quay movie. It's, uh, it's not really a morality tale. It's more a sort of comedy, um, <laughs> which... <laughs> I, you know, which we see with dumb money as well, right? Is is like let's take these business, or e even to a certain extent with 
the big short, right? You take these events in real life and then you, the way that you bring an audience in is you make it funny. You make, you, you create these stereotypes that Emily was talking about. And especially in the case of Blackberry, the movie, you add like a rocking 90s soundtrack. And then like it becomes enjoyable. I mean, I watched it on the plane and I enjoyed it on the plane. Um, Is that like, is that a bad idea? Is it a bad idea? I mean, I think, I don't think it's particularly funny movie. I don't know if you laughed. I I found it an engaging movie. I will say that Uh, it was watchable, um, but I knew too much about the original story not to feel like they missed the potential drama that they had in their hands. What's the big Um, drama that they missed? I mean, the big drama is you are literally the inventor of, uh, of of a category and then you watch it slip out of your hands. And the why behind that is, to me, that's a story worth understanding. And, and maybe you'll say, oh, that sounds really boring, and only a bunch of business journalists will show up to that movie. Um, <laughs> and you might be right. But I actually think in this era, when the next technology and how it's delivered and who's going to deliver it does matter, this is game-changing for us personally, socially, economically. It's actually, you can leave the, the, the cliffhanger could be, you know, who's going to upset Apple? What is the next technology? What, you know, what's the kind of uh, inevitable disruptor on the horizon? Because the, it is an inevitability, except so far Apple has managed to evade it. I, I think movies like this, especially when they're written by comic writers, and, and this one was, and there's a reason why Glenn Howerton, who's a, a fantastic comic actor, was cast as Paul Seeley, and uh, Jay, I'm blanking on his last name, was um, cast Marichal? as... Yes. Uh, was cast as yeah. founder. Um, I wonder if part of it is, you know, people really enjoy this very specific arc whenever they see business stories. And this applies to dumb money and also to the big short where you have someone or an institution or something that's, that's flying high. And then because of sheer hubris and a willingness to uh, violate ethical um, norms, they end up failing. And it's such a reliable formula for Hollywood, especially whatever a lot of the things that you're portraying are things like backdating stock options, you know, where they're harder yeah. to dramatize. There's just no characters. There's no, like, you can make a movie about something like this, but you need to convey it with, you need to put characters in it that you care about. And there, there just wasn't anything here. Mike Lazaridis was. Did he learn something at the end? Yeah, no. Well, well he no. His I think hair turned white. I don't know. He has a character arc. <laughs> though, right? Silly. I don't know anything about him. Like in in the Big Short, you like we knew Steve Carell's character had this like history, and he had this like brother who um, died by suicide, and he was like very intense for re- those reasons. I just feel like they could have done more. A comedy doesn't have to be. Just it, it can have character and story and narrative arc. Sure. I, no one learned anything here. Okay, so Emily, I'm going to say that there was there were, there is a moment in the movie or a few moments in the movie where Lazaridis sort of shoulders the newfound responsibility of running a huge company and basically says, "Okay, we actually do need to kind of grow up a bit." and you know, alienates Doug, his mate, who, you know, guy. Winds, winds up 
you know, leaving with his to look after his billions, poor guy. Um, and and like and that sort of ever increasing distance between Doug and Mike, I feel is the is the arc insofar as that is one. I think er- eroding standards within the company. There there is a great line at the beginning of the movie where. Um, Basili trats out the canard that, you know, uh, good is the enemy of perfect, or perfect is the this enemy of good. This was my favorite quote. And then uh, Mike replies, yeah, but good enough is the enemy of humanity. <laughs> and you see that play out through the rest of the movie. That's yeah. true. Which is, that actually is one of the dramatic themes of this movie, right? Is the technology uh, was great. This was the Betamax of uh, of. Uh, the wireless space um, and the VHS came along and slammed it to pieces, but it was better technology. It did. It made more sense. It was better security, all of the rest of it. I mean, my only complaint Felix with the idea that Doug could be uh, that that relationship could be interesting is that they, they didn't make Doug interesting at all. Yes. uh, He was just a flat character who never really deviated from. Well, finally the writer played Doug, the guy who wrote it. That's right. Yeah. The director, the director. So actually one kind of unkind review I saw was that maybe he was too, too distracted directing to bother acting um, because he didn't ever really deliver anything. Um, And I, I don't disagree. It was sort of the same kind of reaction look every single time and not a lot of growth. And there was that one moment like, okay, so the whole, obviously the whole company is, it's all men. And there's literally, you feel like the director was like, well, I gotta, I gotta do something. I had to, I make sure that people understand that I understand that there's no women here. So there's literally this one scene where the guy is talking to them all, the boss guy that um, that they that Balsilli brings in, and he says something about, like, stand around holding your penises. And where, when he says penises, the camera flashes to a woman's face, and she's just got, like, a deadpan face on. That's, that's how he dealt with the sexism. It was just, like, insulting. Like, don't even do it then. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because there were no, I mean, there, maybe there were a lot of women, but I would imagine there weren't that many women at that in that era. Yeah, it just came off kind of unnecessary, it, it, clumsy, unnecessary. The the thing that I remember vividly from that period that really wasn't in the movie was just the astonishing, like it was the first meme stock in many ways. Well, maybe not the first meme stock, but it was definitely a meme stock. Um, and people really was there was there was a point at which maybe more in New York than in Toronto, but definitely in New York, Rim as a stock became a more compelling story than BlackBerry as a product or BlackBerry as a company. It, mm-hmm. it was like the Tesla of its time. Yeah. To be fair, though, in, that's in the context of the 2000 tech bubble when Pets.com was also more highly valued than traditional, you know, dog food companies. I mean, it was just a time when if you were a tech company, you were going to have a high stock valuation, I think. Right. Its peak valuation was June 08, actually. Right. But that first like the frenzy yeah. around it, I think, was in the. But it did. It did the, have an amazing, amazing run there. Um I don't know, maybe like, but yeah, that, that kind of, you, you kind of realize they've all just become spectacularly wealthy only because Jim Balsley suddenly decides that he should start buying hockey teams. But like beyond that, like the, the, the market side of it, the public company side of it, like the, the really like it, the, te- the stock price 
is useful for the plot only insofar as Balsley is like, well, I've got to increase the stock price to make sure that we can't get acquired. And you're like, oh, I guess in that case, I'll, I'll increase the stock price. How hard <laughs> can it be? You know, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, if it was a good movie, you would see how... <laughs> them making all the money affected their lives. And and besides Jim Balsillie trying to buy an NHL team, which apparently our producer, who was, you know, I don't know how old you were at the time, Patrick, but it was a, a very pivotal moment for our producer, Patrick Fort, who's a big <laughs> Penguins fan. But it didn't it's happen. It fell through. But there was no details. Like, their lives were like this, and then they were like this, you know? Maybe because in the end, there's no tragedy. They all walk away really rich. Except, and then I will throw in, I hate to inject, keep injecting reality. Maybe it doesn't belong here, but this, the whole caricature again, that Jim would only ever fly in a private plane and he barked at the pilots as though they were like Uber drivers. Uh, he lived in the same house he and his wife bought before he ever joined Research in Motion until they divorced. Uh, you know, so when I was interviewing him, when he was a very wealthy tech billionaire in this country, he lived quite a modest life. I mean, he didn't run around acting like um, a jerk. Uh, so again, if maybe that was an attempt to give him kind of character color, but it was it was inaccurate character color. I do need to ask you, Amanda, to put your financial journalist hat on for a minute and talk a little bit about these stock options. At the end of the movie, mm-hmm. they talk about like stock manipulation, and I feel like backdating options and manip- manipulating stock price are two very different things. They are, and it's important, I think, um, for history to remember uh, that it was not illegal. And they didn't do anything illegal in the actual backdating of options. Where they went astray, remember, with the regulator only, was in the disclosing, in the transparency. So if they had just dutifully reported every quarter somewhere in their MDNA that they had backdated the options, it would have been fine. It wasn't the practice, it was the reporting. Um, Now, it, it, it happened to coincide, this lack of reporting and transparency, with a period where people were starting to think the practice was pretty terrible too, and it ultimately stopped being allowed. But when they were doing it, it wasn't itself offside. So, and the, th- the, the, the real break between the two guys, uh, if you believe uh, the book, was this, that Mike never really knew this was happening, and he really valued his name and his, you know, the, the kind of his ethical persona. And he didn't appreciate kind of being dragged into something that sort of seemed fishy. Um, and it did, that did kind of rupture their, their partnership a little bit. Could you just remind me, um, what stock backdating, what backdating options is, what it means exactly? Cause so I, just in I a nutshell, I went, when they were offering compensation, so new hires, um, you could actually give them options, but, pr- but price them to a time when the stock was cheaper. Um, in other words, make them more valuable on paper automatically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's the kind of thing actually that it, in the context of how we're, things are allowed to happen today is a bit shocking that it was ever allowed because mm-hmm. it's just a sleight of hand kind of. Um, and yet it, it was technically uh, permissible as long as you disclosed to the other shareholders that you had diluted them, which is what you're doing. You're reaching back in time into their capital and diluting them earlier than they would otherwise be diluted. So it's a, it was a weird... It's, uh, you know, you could see why it was so tempting because it was an accounting gimmick, but it does have real world consequences in the end for every shareholder. And it wasn't just BlackBerry, right? It was like a lot of companies who were doing it. A lot of companies did it. Yeah. I always think of it as what you're doing is, is instead of granting options at the money, like wherever the share price is, you're just granting options in the money. And 
in principle, there's no reason why you can't pay people within the money options. You can pay people that are out of the money options. I mean, famously, Elon Musk had a whole bunch of out of the money options that he wound up hitting, and that's how he managed to make so many billions of dollars from Tesla, right? So, you know, there are lots of ways you can price options. Um, the backdating part of it is by basically what you're doing is you're pretending that you're give, giving at the money options when in fact you're giving in the money options, um, which has like tax implications and as you say, reporting implications. But I don't, I really don't think it's stock price manipulation. No, and I, and I don't believe that anybody involved there and probably at some other companies felt that they were doing anything wrong. I think they they misunderstood their responsibilities to report, for sure, clearly. Uh, but I don't think there was any kind of, you know, there was no whiff of uh, bad behavior, intentional bad behavior on their part. Yeah, at some point, I think the movie says something like Jim Balsilli avoided jail time or something. Yeah, gross. Which is that was gross. <laughs> yeah. It was, these were regulatory charges. There was no jail. In the and office. also, it wasn't the SEC. It was the Canadians who were bringing the whole Which is case. the same thing, only in another country. But they keep on saying it, the SEC. It was the OSC. Sure. Was oh, the did OSC. they say the yeah. SEC? Yeah. Well, the SEC might have been. It might have been a cooperative. I, I'd have to go back and check. There might have been some cooperation, right? Because it was a dual listed stock at that point. I don't know. Did the SEC and the OSC cooperate? I'm not sure. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There was some funny bits in the movie, though. I'll concede that. <laughs> I liked what, what do you think? Where? Where were the funny bits? My favorite part was when... <laughs> He gets, you have a collect call from, what the fuck is happening? I like that because it reminded me of collect calls and it was just funny, I thought. I, I thought uh, it was, yeah. the thing that sort of was subtle, but I, I thought was smart was the, uh, this, the symmetry between the beginning where the original company gets screwed over by, uh, you know, the, the company that predated Palm because they, they said they were going to order some stuff and then they uh, left them hanging for a long time and, you know, they spent on it. And then at the end, Balsili does the same thing back to Palm and says, okay, you know, we'll merge with you in a few months and then leaves them hanging while they develop the prototype. And I thought, you know, that had some nice payoff. Um, and there was, I but, like when the guy had the Palm Pilot out yeah, and had and, the stylus and it looked so yes. stupid. And, <laughs> but also in the beginning when the Palm guy is, is uh, screwing over the original company, he says something like, um, did you not get my facts? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, was that Carrie Elwes? Yes. From the from the Princess Ride. Yep. I'm like that's just that's just perfect. Okay, the most important thing we need to ask you though, Amanda, is what the fuck is up with vampires in Waterloo? Yes, that's <laughs> I don't I don't know. I don't know. I that was a reference I didn't understand. It's not it's nothing to do with a, I I actually don't know. Dang. Have you I'm ever been to Waterloo? Me. Like, did you notice any vampires while you were there? But I've no. I mean, <laughs> unless that's a reference to all the engineering students there who spend a lot of time indoors. I don't know. They're pasty. I have no. I, I that that one. I was. I thought maybe it was a, the te- the a sports team name because it could be, and I wouldn't know. But I'm not sure. 
but I don't think so. We'll never know. We could like, just wait the, yeah. wait for the sequel, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Blackberry 2. The, yeah, the Internet no. of Things. <laughs> you were close to the story. Um, you, you found this story incredibly compelling in real time. You see the movie, and the movie just, like, takes far too many liberties. Um, and therefore, you just can't really get behind the movie or find any redeeming features to it. That's that's more or less the impression I'm getting. I think you've summed it up well. I mean, I think they took a good, compelling story and tweaked it in ways that made it flat and less interesting and with characters that are caricatures instead of, you know, well-drawn characters. So um, if I were any of the people involved, I think I would be offended by this movie. Maybe they're taking it in stride, but... I don't think I mean, it's a real rendition of a, of a story that I hope people don't watch this movie and think they understand the Blackberry story better because they don't. They won't. Well, Seeley seemed to take it in stride. He showed up to the premiere and was smiling and, you know, arm around Glenn Howerton. So, yep, he's been very gracious about it. Emily, you broadly agree. You, you're not a fan of the movie. I, it had its moments and it was funny and I, I appreciated what it was trying to do. But I think in the end, it didn't. It didn't live up. It wasn't that good of a movie. It just wasn't. It, wa- it, it could have been better. So was, if I had seen it on a plane like Felix, maybe I would feel differently. <laughs> <laughs> are, we, are we doing letter grades here? We should do some letter grades. A- Amanda, where would you, what would you give it as a, as a letter grade? So I'm not familiar with your system, so I don't have a rubric to set to know what you, you know, what you think an A movie is versus a B movie. An A movie is Parasite. We've decided that that's like the... the you know, criterion. Okay. Well, I'm going to go with a D on this one. Okay. Emily? I'll give it a C minus. Elizabeth, I feel like you're you're more sympathetic to it. I am because I just, I, I feel like uh, Hollywood just doesn't know how to portray complicated business stories. So they look for moral lessons. So maybe because of that, I was not expecting, you know, a documentary. <laughs> uh, and I think as, as a standalone movie that, that is trying to dramatize um, you know, the erosion of values within a company. I, I think it's fine. It's like a C plus, B minus. Um, I'm just going to say, yeah, solid B if you watch it on an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I cannot speak to if you watch it in, you know, a slightly less I like the, we, we should refer to that as the situation. airplane discount. Like how, how much is the airplane <laughs> yeah. discount? Is it like a whole letter grade or half of one? <laughs> Sounds like a whole one based on this rating system. On which note, um, Amanda Lang, thanks so much for coming on. This has been fantastic. Thanks for having me. Sorry I didn't know the vampires question. Yeah, I mean, seriously. I'm going to go read up on that. What's the line, Emily? Like, I'm from Waterloo where the vampires hang out? I'm from Waterloo where vampires hang out. Sort of yelled. All right. All right, folks, Amanda cannot do it. So please let us know. Slate money at slate.com. What the hell was he talking about? Or was that just like a random line that he ad-libbed on the spot and it means nothing, which is also possible. 